Thank you. Do you, um, keep your Bibles open. I'm aware as we come to this passage that it is incredibly countercultural, and it sets Christian behaviour at odds with what, lots of what we see in society. So let's um, pray for God's help as we look at his word together. Lord, from the very beginning, mankind has at times struggled to trust you, to trust your goodness, to trust your trustworthiness, to trust your words, to trust that you know best. And so from Genesis 3, as our first parents walked out on you, we, we pray this morning as your, as your word is at the centre of our attention for, for a time, we pray that you would give us hearts that trust you. And speak to us, we pray. And nourish us. And be at work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we've seen week after week after week is that at the heart of this letter to the church in Ephesus, and we see a world that has walked out on God. And so it's a world that is broken in many ways. It's a world of ruined relationships. It's a world of war. And that brokenness affects everything. It even affects how we lead. And so in leadership, we, we rule, we, we lead, but not like God. Rather, we, we lead like tyrants in a way that is self-serving, in a way that is all about me. And we spoke about it in September. That Very sadly, that's been one of the stories of recent times. We've seen leaders who haven't led in a selfless way. And so the world is at war. But again and again and again, we've seen that God has a plan in this world of war. It's a good plan and it will not fail. And in these verses for this morning, we see some of what that looks like in the nitty-gritty of daily life. The really kind of nitty-gritty, low-level, grassroots stuff. It, it changes how wives relate to husbands and how husbands relate to wives. It changes how children relate to parents and parents to children and even slaves to masters and masters to slaves. It's not just for Sundays. This is every day of the week. And in his plan, in God's plan for this broken world, we have a church. And in the church, we have a head who is Christ. And Christ has loved and bought a people for himself at great personal cost. He has rescued a people for himself who were at war with God. He has reconciled a people together who were at war with each other. And he's their head now of the church, which is a glimpse of where humanity, where the world will go, where God's good plan is going, when all things will be united under Christ. So in the church, you get a glimpse of the reality of the future. He's a head now, but he's not a tyrant. He's not self-serving. He is kind, he is patient, he is good, and he pours himself out for his church, and he, and he loves and he serves others. I mean, think about Jesus in the pages of the Gospels. He's the kind of head who turns over tables at injustice and welcomes little children and the overlooked and those on the fringes and, and those who have been rejected by society even. And you see, when we come to this little section in the letter which can cause, believe it or not, quite a lot of confusion, which has been misapplied and abused at times, it is utterly vital that we remember who our head is. Jesus is the head of the household of God, and in the household of God there are little households 
with little heads who are to love like Jesus. And you see, this word head, in our passage for this morning, is a loaded word. It's loaded because so often we don't deal with authority well, whether we are the one in authority or we are the one under authority. But it's loaded too because Paul has been at pains to show us what real headship looks like. He wants to redefine headship for us. He says, don't think about headship as the world thinks about headship. Think about headship as God thinks about headship. And to do that, look at Christ, he says. Christ who has given us redemption through his blood. Christ who has loved his people. And his love for his people is long and wide and high and deep. And Christ who is our example that we are to follow, who's lived a life of love. And you see, headship then is an important word in Ephesians already. Because it's redefining what headship looks like in light of Christ. But that's the wider context. The narrower context matters too because... Well, we've already seen it, really. Verse 21 is the start of this section. In fact, it's not. Verse 18 is the start of the section, because we were thinking about what a spirit-filled church looks like. Do you remember last week? It's speaking to one another and singing and thankfulness, my thankfulness bag, and submitting to each other. And we're in that kind of a church family in Ephesians, a filled by the Spirit, submitting to each other church family. And this section flows from that. And that matters. Because we're thinking about Spirit-filled relationships within that kind of a church. Now this first section, have a look down, and you'll see everybody is meant to be like Jesus. Paul says, God says, wives... You're to be more like Jesus. And we don't think less of Jesus for a time because he submitted to the Father. And Jesus knows what it is like to submit. Husbands, be more like Jesus. And we don't think less of Jesus because he poured himself out in weakness. He, he knows what it is like to lovingly serve. Let's dive in then. First point, verse 22 to 24, following Jesus changes wives Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of his church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Christian marriage, Paul says, should be a picture of Christ and his church. That that's what it is for. That is what Christian marriage is about. It, it sets it apart from all other kinds of marriages, therefore. And you see Paul's logic? Have a look down. The church submits to the Lord Jesus, her head. And so he sees a parallel. The wife is to submit to her own husband, her head. Verse 24. It's a picture that God has given to illustrate Jesus and his church. And I can't see that simply a cultural picture for their day. I can't see how we can rub those verses out and say that was just for then in that patriarchal society. Even in the new Jerusalem, we will be the bride of Christ. But having said that, our culture and our context is very different, isn't it? Where we've moved from being, where we, a young woman would have moved from being under the headship, the authority, if you like, of her, of her father, 
then to becoming under the authority of her, of her husband, the headship of her husband. Now, much of the time for us, that doesn't really happen. The, the woman has left home and gone to university, is living somewhere else and got a job. And there's that slightly weird bit in the marriage ceremony where the, the minister says, who gives this woman to be married? And the sort of father of the bride looks a bit awkward and sort of hands her over and backs off again. And on paper, she might be part of the family because of the surname and spending Christmas at home. But in reality, she's not anymore. I think submission is allowing someone else to lovingly lead. Allowing someone else to lovingly lead. And as, as wives allow someone else to lovingly lead, they are a picture of Christ in the church. And I know at this point, for some of us, our pulse is rising. And there are questions bubbling up. This is so countercultural. I think it's probably just helpful to unpack and clarify four things that I take it submission are not. Okay? Four nots. One, it's not inequality. Because the Bible is very clear that husband and wife have equal worth. I'd say it's not inequality, it's just different roles. Our problem is that the world thinks those who submit are less valuable in some way or don't have a voice or anything worth saying. But that is never the story of the Bible. That is never what God says in his words. Secondly, I'd say it's not oppression because the Bible is clear and condemning of oppression again and again. That, that may have been a problem down the years, something that the church even got wrong, probably sadly still gets wrong. But I want to say that is not biblical. And if you are a wife here this morning and you are being oppressed or bullied, I would urge you to talk to somebody, to, to grab or to message me or Kitty who read for us or one of the pastoral team or a friend you can trust. If, if that is your situation, then please speak to somebody. I want to say as well, if you're a husband seeking to compel or coerce your wife into submission, then grab somebody, talk to them. Send a message. Come and speak to me. Come and chat afterwards. Thirdly, it's not blind obedience. I hope that's obvious, but sometimes it's worth stating the obvious. If I ask my wife Zoe to go into town and to rob a bank, she will quite rightly refuse. Even though it says you're to submit to your husband in everything, why will she refuse? Because first and foremost, she is obeying God. And if I'm asking her to sin, if I'm leading her away from Jesus, she should say no. Because ultimately, her, her final allegiance is with him. That's a, that's a glib example. Perhaps one that might be closer to home is that if a husband asks a wife to watch explicit material with him, to watch porn together, perhaps, or to, to lie to, to cover him in a way because he's mucked up. No, first and foremost, she follows Jesus. That matters. The fourth one is I want to say as well, and this is important, this is not about any woman submitting to any man. Again, I think at times church history's got that wrong. I think this is a particular husband and a particular wife thing. So we're saying as well, if you're not married, if you're single, perhaps you would like to be married, then I wonder if these verses help us paint the kind of picture we ought to be praying for, if that's you. Are you looking for someone, at least in part, that you would be prepared to be lovingly led by, 
Is that part of your, your picture of the guy that you're looking for or praying for? I think it's worth saying this too, and I feel able to say this because a number of people in this room have read this script this last week, um, and, and, one, and some have encouraged me to say this, but wise, are there ways that you practically are seeking to undermine or manipulate or take over your marriage to upset this dynamic that Paul lays out here? The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the saviour. So if that's some of how following Jesus changes wives, how does following Jesus change husbands? What do you think ought to be the, the complement, if you like, the flip side of submission? What are we looking for in this second half? What are you expecting Paul to say as you reach the husband bit? Surely we're expecting him to say lead, aren't we? Wives, submit, husbands, lead. But have a look down, it's not that at all. It's not lead your wives, it's love your wives. And in case we miss it, and I think us husbands can be very slow, he says it three times. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Verse 33, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. You see, Paul, as he's writing, I'm just going to mention it again, just in case they've forgotten. Husbands, our verb is love. And so really, he is radically redefining what leadership actually is. He, and he gives us Jesus dying on the cross as both our model and our motivation for this kind of loving leadership. Have a look down with me. In fact, give it 15, 20 seconds. Have a look at 25 to 27. And just see if you can track the line of thought that Paul's got here. Did you see it? As Christ sacrificially loves the church, there are two things in mind. One, verse 26, it's to make her holy, it's to cleanse her. That is, Jesus dies on the cross, he deals with the sin of his people, all the wrong thoughts, the attitudes, the things we should have done, the things we, we didn't do, the things we have even. The things that make a perfectly just and good God rightly angry. So, so we are washed by Jesus and forgiven, cleansed. And more than that, we're made holy, which, which really means set aside for a purpose. He, he does away with his own agenda. He sacrifices himself. He cleans us. He gathers us in and gives us a job. It's a huge privilege. But then as well as that in verse 26, the cleansing, in 27 you get another point, which points us ahead to another marriage. And you see the goal of where it's all going. Verse 27, this set aside for a purpose, holy church, being presented to Christ as a beautiful bride, pictured as, as radiant, without stain or wrinkle or blemish, that's where it's all going. No cover-up, no makeup, no beauty cream needed, because Christ has finished the job. He's done the work of washing and purifying and finally getting rid of, of all our sin. You see, in the gospel, he, he draws us to himself and he washes us and he cleanses us. And then in the gospel, he, he grows us and he purifies us and he transforms us and he ultimately presents us to himself. Which is incredible news. But husbands, that is the picture of loving leadership we have. 
That is the portrait that Paul gives us. And he says, slow down and examine that and marvel at that. And in the strength that he gives you, seek to love like that. Self-sacrifice, others-centered. Jesus loves his body. He loves the church. And so in the same way, verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Paul loves to morph his pictures halfway through a train of argument. But the church is the bride of Christ and then the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the loving head of his body, the church. And so the husband, in one sense, is the loving head of his, his body, his wife, which is why he can say, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And Christ cares for his body, for the church, so husbands are to care for their wives. Christ loves and looks after his church, so husbands are to love and to look after their wives. Christ gives himself up for his church. And so husbands are to give themselves up for their wives. And so you see, marriage is prophetic. A Christian marriage ought to tell the world something about the gospel. It's the advertising hoarding. It's it's what colleagues and neighbours and friends and family look at. And as the husband sacrificially cares for his wife and the world sees something of how Christ loves and cares for the church. And indeed, as the wife willingly seeks to submit to her husband, so the, the world sees something of how the church seeks to submit to Christ. Marriage is prophetic. How does this work out? Let me try and illustrate in a slightly glib way how some of these things might potentially work out. Imagine, man, we've all had enough, haven't we, of of lockdown. Imagine you've got your summer holiday planned for next year, or you're planning your summer holiday, a husband and wife planning a summer holiday, trying to decide what to do. And they come to this big impasse because she wants to go to the beach. It's been a nightmare for the last couple of years. She just needs a bit of sun and rest and relaxation and to be able to to lie on the beach and read a book and, and go to a restaurant in the evening and enjoy some heat and and he wants to go skiing because that's how he relaxes um, and so they're at this impasse and eventually she comes to church and hears the pastor talking about Ephesians 5 and thinks right okay I'll submit you decide my love and he says we'll go to the beach because that is what you need and because I'm seeking your good and your godliness before my own. Maybe that's something of how it works out. A couple of areas of application for husbands, or indeed if you're a single man hoping to marry, then maybe take these thoughts and ponder again the, the kind of marriage you're longing for in the years to come. It's striking to me that two-thirds of the passage is addressed to husbands. Maybe we're just slower learners. Two things, though. Number one, husbands, husbands, you are head all the time. You're not simply the head if you're doing a good job of being like Christ. Does that make sense? It seems to me from these verses, headship doesn't come from how well you're doing, but it is a status, it is a constant in your marriage. It's not a question of are you being a head, rather it's what kind of a head are you being. 
And if marriage is prophetic, if marriage is meant to point to the gospel, if your marriage is meant to show the world something of what the gospel is like, then a question must be, what does my marriage say to the world? What do I, what do we communicate about Christ? There'll be particular questions for couples perhaps where perhaps the wife has stronger leadership skills or cares more about particular things. There'll be questions if the husband is, is less spiritually mature. Maybe those are questions for afterwards over coffee or home group or things to think and talk and pray about. But husbands, at times, it's so easy, isn't it, to shirk responsibility or to be overly passive or to be independent or perhaps even for some to be coercive and controlling, seeking to, to force submission in some way. Now, that is not your job. That is between her and the Lord. That is not for you. Husbands, are you showing the world what Christ-glorifying, loving leadership is as you pour yourself out for your wife? Second one, husbands, you are to love her redemptively. Do you notice that? The husband's loving leadership of his wife is with her ultimate good in mind. And some husbands can use passages like this and end up being dominant domineering, arrogant bullies. But that is wrong. We must get that in our minds. The loving leadership the husbands are called to is for her sanctification and for her godliness. Husbands, ultimately, it's about our, our wives growing in holiness and in purity. That's what's going on here. That is what we are to encourage and to lead them in, not simply to get your way all the time. That's not what this passage is about. How do we do that? How do we care for our wives' sanctification and godliness? Well, speaking as an imperfect husband here, and again, studying passages like this to teach to you guys is convicting. But I take it it's through praying for, praying for her. Not just praying for daily needs, but praying for holiness, praying for purity. Can you, can you turn Ephesians 3 prayer from a few weeks ago into a prayer for your wife? Maybe through teaching, thinking how the gospel works out in life, feeding your marriage with truth, taking the initiative in opening up the Bible together, taking the initiative in spiritual things, asking questions. And if you don't know what questions to helpfully ask your wife, then ask her. And wise, if you can humour us, we're sorry that we don't know you that well or what questions to ask, but give us the questions to ask that we might help you to grow in godliness and maturity. I take it as well, it's, it's being an example. Being a model of godliness with that future day always in mind. Her radiance, her purity, presenting her to Christ. And leading the way in that even. Again, if you're not married and you would like to be married... I guess I can ask, how, how are we developing those skills? How are we in training? Husbands, how are you in training? Or potential future husbands to be that kind of self-sacrificial head where you're pouring yourself out? Or maybe you're called to singleness. How can you be praying for and helping marriages to be prophetic like that? To show something of the gospel at work? 
encouraging them, praying for them, spurring them on. Friends, aside from this being just incredibly, incredibly countercultural, this is a really hard passage. This is really challenging stuff. I hope I've represented it well today. I hope this isn't my agenda or my soapbox, my slant on things, but simply what God, by his spirit, has set before us. But it's no doubt that we will need to come back to it again and again and again throughout our lives. While sin is still indwelling, these are the kind of passages that we'll need to keep coming back to. Finally, even more countercultural words about how following Jesus changes families and workplaces. That's verse six, sorry, chapter six, one to nine. And have a look down. Notice that the, the verb changes in this section. Children are to obey parents in the Lord, 6 verse 1. Slaves are to obey masters, 6 verse 5. And why are they to obey? Well, children first, verse 1, because it's right. Verse 2, because there's a promise that goes with it. Verse 3, so that you may... It may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. I I take it that means, generally speaking, obeying your parents leads to a better life. It leads to blessing. That is how God has ordered the world to function. That is the way it's meant to be. And then slaves, why are they to obey? Well, obey them, obey your masters as you would obey Christ when they're watching and when they're not watching, verse 6. Serving as if you were obeying him, verse 7. Because he's a master who who rewards his people, verse 8. Now, slavery is interesting, isn't it? When we think of slavery here, we don't have a like-for-like parallel role, I think, for this to match to. We need to be careful of thinking slavery and switching master for employer. It doesn't quite work like that. There are nuances, but there are principles, perhaps, that are helpful too. I think it's worth saying as well, the slavery here, the kind of slavery in Ephesians 6, is largely a different kind of slavery from the modern-day slavery we encounter today, where people are abused and dehumanised in that way. But even though it seems to me there are useful principles for us to latch onto, to glean, and to pray through as we seek to live out. So what are some of those principles? Well, our obedience to our boss, like them, is to be from the heart So verse 5, we serve with sincerity of heart. Or verse 6, we we do the will of God from our hearts. Which means we're not just trying to impress or compete with others or go through the motions or work our way up the ladder or do the bare minimum when it comes to how we work. Now at the workplace, our eyes are not on them watching us, they're on him. How we work matters. How hard we work matters because it matters to him. He is our ultimate boss. And the issue is, if we think we're just about impressing them, then maybe sometimes they're not in the room. And so you're tempted to put your feet up or to just kind of drop back a couple of gears or to to scroll on your phone and see what's going on on Facebook or whatever it might be. But no, actually it's about our hearts and it's about him. And because our ultimate allegiance is to him as well, that might mean we need to think about our jobs. Maybe at times we need to change jobs because he is our ultimate boss. And if so, there's an all-encompassing culture of work at the expense of other responsibilities, 
maybe their family responsibilities or church responsibilities. Maybe we ask hard questions because ultimately our responsibility is to him, not to our boss. And when we think Jesus is always watching us, that doesn't mean when we're at work we need to work really, 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 really hard because we're scared of him. What it means is he loves you and he is gracious and he is kind and he he has bought you for himself. He has redeemed you. And that's the kind of boss that you're seeking to, um, to work for. So children, employees, has or how has the gospel transformed your attitude towards those who have authority over you? Maybe that's a question for this week. And then he speaks to parents and he speaks to slave masters. Again, there's a parallel there with employers. Parents, especially dads, rather than exasperating your kids, you are to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And the exasperation here, I think, means being overly harsh. Maybe it's disciplining your kids, not just for their sin, but for them simply being silly, for them simply being children, or because they annoy you, or they take away your comfort, or they make you have to do things that you don't particularly want to do, and, and we can be overly harsh with our kids. And then slave masters, employee, employers, there's a countercultural way that you lead as well, not threatening them, verse 9, but by doing them good, verse 8. Friends, if you oversee people in your workplace, it is a privilege. Be gentle as you lead them. Be different in the way that you lead. Lead them in a way that acknowledges you too sit under an authority and you are answerable to your master for the way that you lead them. And so you see, God's plan is not just to think about church on Sundays think about the gospel on Sundays but it's to trickle down into all the different relationships that we have right through the week even and especially our closest relationships with the people who know us the best who see us at our worst perhaps the people whom we particularly hurt in our sin And so I take it we find ourselves at the cross as we finish a passage like this. I know I do. It's been a very challenging one to prepare this week. Left me with lots of homework and things to think about and pray about and revisit and rework through. But we're at the cross where we find a God who loves to forgive. And where we've failed and we've got these things wrong, we can rejoice that he does forgive us. He is patient And we can come to the cross and ask for help to have marriages that increasingly show the gospel to the world. For help to be parents who love and bring up our children well. And for help to be employers or employees who let the gospel shape our work life. Christ's love is both the model and and the motivator for our lives. But again, it's Christ's love that picks us up when we get it wrong. That sets us on our feet and helps us to keep going. Let's pray now.
Lord, as we began, we, we can easily be a people who, who struggle to trust you and who struggle to trust your words. And so we pray at the end of a, of a difficult, challenging passage like that, we, we pray that you would help us to remember your character, to remember what you're like. We thank you that you are gracious. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you know what it means to submit. We thank you that you know what it means to lovingly pour yourself out. We pray that you'd help us to be brave enough to let the gospel shape our closest relationships. Thank you that you fill us with your spirit. And we pray that he might be at work changing us each day. Amen.